You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Well, today we're going to continue our series on dominion. What does it look like for the rule and reign of God to function in our own lives? We're on part nine. Um, We're in the sort of the third chapter of this series. We're talking through theological understanding. The theology is simply the study of God. Last week, we talked about the grand story or the grand narrative of scripture. And today, what I want to do is just take a little bit of time to talk about biblical interpretation. This is really important. Many of you probably have heard these sort of things um, where someone will say, you know, the Bible is clear. And what they mean is the way that they've interpreted the Bible, it's clear to them the Bible is saying certain things. I've heard people before say, you know, the Bible is clear. A Christian should not get a tattoo. Or the Bible is clear. A Christian should not partake in any sort of alcohol. And what they're saying really is that their interpretation of the Bible has made it clear to them that this is the case, even though the Bible itself is not actually clear about those things. It doesn't have a lot to say about those things, but they think that it does. And so therefore their interpretation is leading them to believe this idea. Or maybe you've heard someone say, maybe in a Bible study or in a small group, they'll say something with good intentions. They'll say, to me, this verse means. And the intention there is probably for them to try to flesh out what is the scripture actually saying. They're doing an exercise, really, an interpretation. They're trying to interpret what is it that the verse is actually saying. And in both of these situations, when people say, you know, the Bible is clear, or to me, this verse means... Those things should give us pause. I'm sure there are others that we could talk through, but those should give us pause because we have to ask ourselves, what sort of um, tools of interpretation did we use or methods of interpretation did we use to come to the conclusion that the Bible is clear or that to me, this verse means or this verse says. And so let's take a little bit of time to talk about biblical interpretation. Or in in like, you know, Bible colleges or theological terms, we would call this hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Interpretation equals hermeneutics. And a biblical hermeneutic is this. The methods that help us to properly interpret, understand, and apply scripture. To properly interpret, understand, and apply scripture. This is known as hermeneutics or biblical hermeneutics. How do we interpret scripture? Now, understanding the Bible as a story and reading it as such provides great safeguards to our own interpretations. Uh, Seeing Jesus as the main character of the story is paramount. And so, This is why last week, if you didn't listen to last week, go back and listen to last week as we talk about the scripture in a grand narrative way, that the Bible above all is a story. It is a book or 66 different books that have been accumulated, have been put together to tell us a grand narrative about God and his people or God at work in this world that he has created. 
So understand the Bible as a story and read it as such is very, very important. It helps provide sort of safeguards and bumpers for our interpretations. And then also seeing Jesus as the main character of this story that all of the scripture is trying to talk to us about, introduce us to, woo us into worshiping and surrendering our lives to the one true king, Jesus. Now, Scott McKnight, who is a New Testament scholar and biblical historian, in his book, we'll put a link maybe to this book below, The Blue Parakeet, uh, Rethinking How You Read the Bible by Scott McKnight. Um, in this book, he expresses the power of reading the Bible as a story and employing the helpful interpretive tool of that was then and this is now. In the book, he asserts this. A quote, until we learn to read the Bible as story, we will not know how to get anything out of the Bible for daily living. We need to read each passage in its location in the story, and then we will see how it all fits together. And unless we read the Bible as story, we might be tempted to make that was then into it's also now. But it isn't. He goes on to say, times have changed. God spoke in Moses's days in Moses's ways. And he spoke in Jesus's days in Jesus's ways. And he spoke in Paul's days in Paul's ways. And he speaks in our days in our ways. And it is our responsibility to live out what the Bible says in our days. We do this by going back so we can come forward, always proceeding into our world organically connected to what is in our past. I know that's a lot of, uh, of a quote, and so maybe we'll post this quote up as well uh, so that you can kind of read through it and study through what he is saying here. But really saying, listen, there's this grand story, story in the scripture, and we must read it as that. We must understand that when we're reading the scripture, that was then and this is now is important for us to understand. Uh, so that when we locate what text we have, we locate it in its proper time frame, in its proper place in the story. So that we, won't, we don't extract certain ideas and claim that they are actually relevant or should be applied Today, when in, in, in reality, in their story, they were applied to a specific people for a specific purpose at a specific time, within a specific culture and context. And so we have to understand that. And if we don't understand that, we can misapply or misinterpret lots of the text. I think that this is what Paul was speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. We talked about this verse last week. But Paul is encouraging Timothy, a spiritual son of his, um, to raise up other leaders alongside him who are willing to study the text, who are willing to study the storyline of Scripture, which is Christ uh, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coming again. That's the storyline of all of the text. And he says to him in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And he finishes the statement saying this, rightly handling the word of truth. 
Now, this idea of rightly handling the word of truth is what we mean when we talk about hermeneutics, when we talk about biblical interpretation. How do we rightly interpret scripture and then rightly apply scripture so that we don't make ourselves look foolish by misapplying scripture, by claiming things that the scripture is not claiming for our day and our time? So there are two really big ideas or, or two interpretive approaches that people tend to fall into. And one of these ways in which we interpret scripture is right. And the other way is wrong. So there's a right way and a wrong way to interpret scripture. And I'm going to break those two down for you briefly here. And I hope this will help you as you go to your own scripture and read it. Uh, you know, Paul uh, references in Acts, the Bereans, the church, the people of Berea. And what they would do is when Paul would teach scripture, they would go back home and they would open up their own text, whatever text they had. Of course, it was just the Old Testament at that time. They would open it up and they would search the text to make sure what Paul was saying was actually there, was actually true. And we need more people like that in our churches these days who are willing to search the text, do the deep work of studying scripture. We cannot just rely upon pastors like myself, internet preachers, TV preachers, or whatever to interpret text for us. We need to learn how to do ourselves. So there's a right way and a wrong way. Let's talk about the right way first. The right way to interpret scripture is what we call exegesis. Exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, exegesis. And that word simply means to lead out or lead out of. So exegesis is where the text leads the way to any sort of conclusions about the meaning of the text. So the text leads out to, to provide for us any sort of conclusions that we might have about the text. And exegesis requires a careful and objective analysis of the text. A careful and objective analysis of the text. And this is the proper way to interpret scripture. The German theologian Karl Barth would say it like this. He said, scriptura scripturae interpres, which means scripture is the interpreter of scripture. Scripture is the interpreter of Scripture. This is what exegesis means, that the Scripture leads out, the text leads the way to interpreting itself. Meaning, as we read the text, we should look for the clues of what is being said in the text to help us understand the context and the meaning and the application of that text. I'm going to give us a few more tools later on keys to good interpretation. So that's the first one. The, the right way to interpret the text is exegesis, where the text leads out. Our conclusions lead out of what the text is saying about itself. The wrong way to interpret scripture, and unfortunately this happens often, is what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. -E -E -S -S. Eisegesis. And this word simply means to lead into. To lead into. It means this. The interpreter injects their own ideas into the text, making it mean what the interpreter wants it to mean. 
And most of us would be like, I've never done that before. But the reality is most of us have done that a lot. We've taken our own ideas, our own um, filters of life, and we have applied that to the text. We've read that into the text. This is a very subjective way of reading scripture. It is a non-analytical um, reading of the text, non-analytical reading of the text, eisegesis. So this is the impro improper way to read scripture or to interpret scripture. This is where we get sort of ideas. There's tons of books out there about these sort of things, but this is where we get these ideas of the Harbinger books or the Blood Moon books or people declaring angels from Africa to come help America or people uh, speaking about racism by declaring thou shall not pass or blowing COVID away. We've seen this sort of nonsense online or this idea that certain American uh, political leaders are representations of Old Testament kings like King Cyrus. So this is where we get the ideas where like America is somehow synonymous with Israel. All of those things, people with probably good intentions are actually leading into the text. They were reading things into the text that are not there and therefore they are misinterpreting the text and misapplying the text. And we don't want to be those kind of people. We don't want to add things to the text that aren't there. Earlier, I referenced about some people say the Bible is clear that Christians should not partake in any sort of alcohol. Now, you can find some scriptures that do talk about alcoholic beverages in the scriptures, but there is no clear understanding of what the Bible's stance is on Christians partaking in alcohol. The, the most clear stance that we can find is when it says that we should not be drunk. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't partake. Matter of fact, Timothy or Paul refers to Timothy or or says to Timothy, he should drink some wine for the ailments of his stomach. Uh, we read over and over again how Jesus was at uh, the, the wedding at Cana and he uh, turned the water into wine. Some would say, well, that is grape juice. No, nope. what you're doing there is you're reading your own ideas into the text. It's not grape juice. There's actually no sort of evidence within the context that that is grape juice. Matter of fact, all of the context declares to us that indeed it is a wine because the MC of the wedding says most people serve the best wine first and you have saved the best wine for last. Meaning he's, he's, he's grading the vintage of the wine. He's like, this wine is great. Nobody says that about Welch's grape juice. And so we see even in the context that how this could work out. Let me take another scripture here real quick just to show you how this works about exegesis and eisegesis. And really today, it's just sort of some practical ways to interpret the Bible, okay? So practical ways to interpret the Bible. But many of us have heard this, especially recently as we've been in this sort of season of, uh, of, of this political season that we've been in. And that is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Um, it is something that uh, really gets me going because I hear uh, Christians and pastors and memes and we see pictures and images with this verse all the time. And this verse says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, 
what has happened with this verse is this verse has been extracted from its context. It has been extracted from its place in the story of Scripture, and it has been uh, applied to American politics. And some of you might be like, well, I don't understand. It's just saying that we should humble ourselves and we should pray. We should seek God's face. And if we do that, then God's going to turn America back to him. There's a lot of problems with that. That is not what this scripture is saying at all. This scripture has no reference to America at all. Matter of fact, this reference has no scripture to geopolitical nations at all. This isn't some sort of carte blanche, like um, banner scripture that would get placed over any nation that if some of the Christians within the nation will just pray hard enough, fast hard enough, if they'll just repent, repent, then all of a sudden God's going to swoop in upon that nation and that nation itself is going to be made in a right relationship with God. First of all, nations, geopolitical nations have no ability to have a relationship with God. People have relationships with God, not nations, not geopolitical nation states. That's not what this text is saying. So we're applying it, trying to over-spiritualize some sort of thought process about America that is not in the text at all. And so we're reading into it our own sort of cultural biases. We're reading into it our own sort of like American exceptionalism. And we're applying it to the text as if America is synonymous with Israel. And if America does what Israel did, then God will bless America. But it's just not in the text. It's just not there. Matter of fact, if we read the text in the full context, what is happening here is the children of Israel have come out of captivity. They've come out of a season of being under uh, great oppression. Solomon is now their king. Solomon has built a temple and a tabernacle, a place where God will dwell, what we would consider the most opulent of all of the tabernacles. And they're wrestling with this idea, is God actually going to dwell in our midst once again as he did before? And when Solomon prays a dedication upon the temple and this, the 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 glory of God fills the temple. They can't even minister in the temple anymore. Then God speaks to Solomon. Challenge Solomon about the children of Israel. And before even we get to 2 Chronicles um, 7, 14 here, let me read just a little bit above that uh, text. Let me open it here. 2 Chronicles uh, 7. And so just above 714, here's what happens. So, uh, verse 11, it says this, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and his own house, he successfully accomplished. Verse 12, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So he's saying like, when there comes a time, if you've turned against me and judgment has to come upon you because I've chosen this place to dwell, this temple, this I've heard your prayer, I'm going to dwell here. But if there comes a 
again has to come on the house of Israel. Then he says, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there forever for all time. So you can go read more about that. But here's what the Lord is saying to Solomon. The Lord is declaring to Solomon that, yes, he will dwell in this new temple. But it's still conditional, just as it was in Deuteronomy chapter 28 with the blessings and the cursings. He's reminding Solomon and the people of God about his covenant, that he is a God who is present, but that that covenant was contingent upon their willingness to follow after him. And if they reject him, then judgment will come. But when judgment comes, he's a faithful God, faithful to uphold his covenant. And if they will just return to him, if his people will call upon his name, will humble themselves and pray, then he will turn from his wicked, he will turn, uh, they will turn from their wicked ways and he will hear their cries and he will heal their land. So this is all about Israel, not the geopolitical nation state of Israel that we talk about today, but the people of God who were set apart to say we all, the entire nation of Israel at this point was a people unto God in covenant with God. See, America is not a nation in covenant with God. Never has been, never will be a nation in covenant with God. God doesn't work that way anymore. We are in Christ now, not a nation in covenant with God. We as individuals become a part of a new nation, a new Israel in Jesus Christ. And so in that text, he says, if my people, he's talking about the covenant people that he has called, called by my name, the very people of God. If we were to apply this currently, it wouldn't be about nations. It would be about church folk. It'd be about people like you and me. That when we have walked away from God and we're experiencing sort of judgment and difficulty in our life, if we as the people of God will humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face, then God will come and he will restore our relationship with him. He will heal our land. He will heal our hearts. Do you see the difference between these ideas? So if we, if we extract it from its context and we, we read into it all kinds of all, all these other cultural filters that we have, we will misapply the scripture. So we have to be careful there. So exegesis, where the text itself leads out, we learn what the text is saying, and we, we do the deep work to analyze the text in a very objective analysis, um, or eisegesis, where we uh, lean into the text, we lead into it, we, we, we apply our own filters, our own preconceived notions onto the text. The right way is exegesis. The wrong way is eisegesis. Now, a couple of quick tools. I hope this is helpful for you. I want you to uh, lean into this a little bit more, but a couple of quick uh, ways or keys to good interpretation. I'm just going to throw them out there. One, as I just spoke about a minute ago, is this idea of context. Context is so important. So one there is the context of the immediate 
Like, what is the text around this scripture declaring? The immediate context of that story. For instance, here in 2 Chronicles 7, uh, Solomon, the story of Solomon dedicating the temple and God filling the temple with his presence and then speaking to Solomon about the prayers of Solomon. It's the immediate context, the immediate story. Also context, there's a historical and cultural context that is happening here. So all of the text is placed in some sort of historical timeline and a cultural moment in that historical timeline. We must take that into consideration as we interpret the text. All text is not equally applied in the same way, in the same uh, sort of uh, idea in every uh, uh, moment in history. And so we have to understand the historical or cultural context of what's happening with the text. Also a context, we have to understand the scriptural context, meaning what is the grand story? How does this text fit into the grand narrative of God's story? So context is very important. Another way to uh, good interpretation is to, to look into or begin to understand who is the one that wrote this scripture? What is the, what is, who is the author? And who would be the reader of this scripture? Obviously, we read the scripture, but it's important to note that the, though the scripture, um, the scripture, uh, we can use the scripture for our lives for sure, but it was not written to us. For us, Yes, the scripture is written for us, but the scripture was not written to us. So understanding the author and the reader, who was this written to, who wrote it to them, what was the intention behind writing this becomes very, very important. Another way uh, to good interpretation is to do some deep studies into the Hebrew and Greek languages. These were the original languages that the Bible is written in. So Hebrew, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Most of the New Testament is written in Greek. And there are plenty of online resources for you to do that. To do that. Um, if you just go look up like Vine's Expository Dictionary, you'll find ways in which you can begin to understand. Uh, Hebrew and Greek works differently than our English language. There are, uh, they may be using a particular word like, say, for instance, love. And love in the Greek has five or six really different definitions for it. So which love are we talking about? Are we talking about agape love, the guy, God kind of love? Are we talking about storge love, the love that's shared among families? Are we talking about uh, uh, philo love, the uh, Philadelphia, like the, the brother, brotherly type love? What kind of love is it that we're talking about? Well, when we dig into Greek and Hebrew, we can begin to understand a little bit better about what's going on. So it's a good way to help interpret the scripture. Commentaries are very, very uh, helpful. What have other biblical scholars said about this text? That way, we're not running off on our own, sort of creating our own ideas about what the text says, but we can bring ourselves into a way in which we are reading the text in the same sort of ways that trusted biblical scholars have also read the text. Again, tons of commentary resources online for free. And then lastly, I'd say a really good way to interpret the text is to interpret it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. 
Jesus himself said that all of the Old Testament was pointing to him and that he is the salvation that everybody was looking for. And so we have the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. We have the Gospels that is the declaration of the incarnation, the life um, the, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And then we have the book of Acts all the way through the book of Revelation, which is about the church age and how do we then begin to live out this new life that we found in Jesus. So Jesus is a great way to help interpret scriptures. If I find myself thinking a scripture means something that is contrary to the ways of Christ, then more than likely my interpretation of the text is wrong or somehow flawed. So I'd encourage you to interpret the text through Jesus. Amen. Scripture is the interpreter of scripture. So I hope that this is helpful for you, some tools on how to interpret the Bible, how to develop a biblical hermeneutic. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your word we thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to divide our soul and our spirit. So, Lord, we pray, God, that we would be people of your word, just like the Bereans were people who studied your word, just like Paul was encouraging Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. May we be a people who understand how to rightly divide, how to rightly handle the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you go, let me pray this prayer over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.